0: This episode is brought to you in collaboration with the 2020 Real Estate Forum, brought to you virtually by Informa Markets. Join the industry on the 2nd and 3rd December by registering at realestateforums.com after you listen to this episode to join Aaron and myself at the forum this year.
1: Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawlik.
2: Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast, powered by First National. I'm Mary Cameron. With me, as always, Adam Pawadit. A uh, reminder to our listeners, Adam and I are going to do uh, sort of a new section as part of the podcast with our after show. So stay tuned after our conversation. Our guest today is Courtney Cooper, who is the principal of Elate Partners. Courtney, thanks for joining. We'll set the stage. I mean, we're going to get into Courtney's background and what a late is, but this is one of our more exciting interviews only because it's not just strictly about the future of retail and what's going on in the industrial industry. It's much more about prop tech and kind of other things that are going on in the real estate world that's not just COVID specific and asset related. So, Courtney, thanks for the refreshing topic and the opportunity to kind of have some different conversations. So, yeah, as always, Courtney, let's just, I mean, let's go backwards first to kind of maybe talk about your entrance into real estate and, you know, what led you to Elate.
1: Sure. Thanks for having me. So I started at Elate to almost just over two years ago. So Elate, just for context, is based in Toronto and we invest in real estate tech companies. And so when I'm there, I support sort of three aspects of the business. So I focus on sourcing new companies and finding new opportunities for us to invest in and just building out our network in the community. I help support our portfolio companies. So that can be being on a board or board observers and just helping out however we can. And I also work on our partnerships and industry networks. So lots of different aspects of the roles that are fun. And in terms of how I got into real estate or real estate technology, I mean, it goes back to the beginning. You know, I, my first job was in a condo sales center, helping out sort of as a receptionist, doing some intel, going to other sales centers and trying to find out their pricing and marketing materials and, and things of that nature. Then I went to, when I was in university, I focused on, I did business undergrad, but focused on operations and information management. So at that time I thought I was going to go into supply chain management or something like that. You know, I was really interested in databases and technology and how that all fit together. But when I started out, I, I started at Dream and I was really joined sort of in that nature. I joined on a team that was internal operations. So it was really sort of a bit of everything. It was technology, HR. Um, I reported into the VP who oversaw that whole group. And from there, I worked on sort of internal communications. We were creating a new website internally. And we were doing a big overview of all of the technology to understand, you know, how does our ERP system Solve needs, you know, there was a lot of challenges around running reports and, you know, how long things took and reconciliation. So trying to do a lot of work and try to understand if there was third party software that we could integrate or sort of use or whether we had to build our own. So That was sort of back in 2011, when there was a lot less going on in terms of prop tech, a lot of the big names that you know, were just getting started. And so we did look at third party, we also worked on building our own. And then since then, I've been working in real estate technology and operations, I did sort of a similar role in financial services at Great Westlife, focused on innovation and technology. And so really going to a late was a combination of all the things i had been working on and bringing in sort of the investor side. So I've always been working on technology and thinking about about how you can bring startups into larger enterprises. And so at this point now, it's kind of from the other side, helping startups grow and navigate sort of the enterprise journey.
0: If we can take a minor detour into, uh, you started off by as a condo spy. Was, was that correct? Was spying on your competitors at a condo uh, organization?
1: Yeah, that's true. So I was, yeah. I mean, I was mostly a receptionist. So like, okay, you know, ninety percent of my job was getting coffee. But yeah, they, uh, they a little also bit of espionage. <laughs> gave, yeah, corporate espionage, you can
0: call it. <laughs> okay, well, we, we aren't here to talk about corporate espionage today, but that that is an interesting topic. So this brings us up to you joining a late. Can you describe more about what a late does?
1: Yeah, so Relay was founded in 2018. Probably conversations were started long before that, but it's really started through a partnership between Dream and Relay Ventures. So, most of your listeners are probably familiar with Dream, but Relay is a, venture, a leading Canadian venture fund. They've been around for 12 plus years and more of a generalist tech investor. They're one of the largest backers and earliest backers into Ecobee. They're in the score a company called Greenlight, so a fintech company in the US that's doing really well. So a number of sort of known brands. And really, they were getting pulled into real estate techs through Ecobee, starting to see the change that was happening and also seeing sort of the complexities of working with real estate companies when you're selling directly to the companies versus to consumers. So so they were getting early interest there and starting to see sort of what was happening in smart home. But they recognized that there was a need to partner with people who have more domain expertise and sort of dream. Um, at the other side, I talked about how earlier, you know, I was helping on some of their technology initiatives. And I think they've always been an innovative company looking at different ways that they can use technology and just different kinds of capital structures, think about different buildings in a different way. So this is sort of up their alley in terms of thinking about the future of the industry. But they recognized that they wanted to partner with established VCs who knew how to build companies and invest in tech companies. and So that's sort of where the idea came from. Then we launched it mid-2018. We put together an advisory board. We have leaders from companies like Ivan Cambridge, Hallmark, Menkes, Capri, a number of other sort of local and sort of international real estate companies who could help us identify opportunities and really test out whether or not there's, you know, companies we're speaking to are solving real problems, help sort of speed up on some of the due diligence and just be partners who are interested in technology and bringing technology into their organization.
2: What is, I mean, we're going to get into sort of the criteria, what it's like to sort of source new opportunities or new investment opportunities regardless of that I'm just curious so You 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 mentioned the advisory board and the and the nature of it you know being predominantly or exclusively sort of large institutional real estate owners when you find a potential investment is it automatic like is there a process where you, you have to go to them and go eh this one and they kind of say yes no I'm interested I'm not interested or is it more of only on a case by case basis when you feel it necessary to go and engage them
1: it's a bit of both to be honest i mean i really the way we see it is so i would say it's kind of the Is So we go out and we look at technology companies. And if we find a great company or a specific space, you know, we're interested in how apartment owners are thinking about IoT and, you know, smart apartments. And so we would go and talk to some of our partners and the name partners, as well as our informal networks to understand what are the problems here? How do you think about it? How do you buy? Does this kind of idea make sense? And really what we're looking for is feedback from what the industry's thinking, trying to understand how quickly or slowly companies are going to adopt a certain product or technology. And I think what we're looking for more is, you know, to try to understand what the sales challenges might be. Does this kind of technology or company miss the mark? Do people say this is something we'll never use. And here's why it'll never make sense for the industry. So, you know, we hear a whole mix, or we're super excited about it. But I mean, I think that what we're really looking for is learning from our perspective and to make sure that we're not getting enamored by the technology or we don't have blind spots, but we don't have any type of process that if our partners say, we don't use it. That doesn't mean we don't invest. But, you know, if every person in real estate said this will never work and here are the key reasons, there's a good likelihood that there's a reason for that. And so we would look really hard to understand why that is. Is it structural? Is there ways around it? Ask questions to the company, how they're thinking about it, just so that we know that, you know, at the stage we invest, Company or in the in the stage we talk to companies at the earliest stages, and so they might have just launched a product, and so we're really trying to understand: does this die in the next year, or is it just that they're early and some of these big players aren't ready for it? But you know, by the time the company as the company develops, the industry might move this way. So we're not looking for specific advice, or we don't align our sales cycles with some of the large institutional real estate companies because we know that you know all the companies have different priorities and sales cycles can be long. So really, we're looking for just insights that we wouldn't uncover necessarily on our own because we're not as deep experts in industrial or apartments or specific technology in the building. You
0: mentioned getting in and you know as early as possible with, with some of these companies. So you would be, of course, trying to invest in a bit of absence of information or track record, I guess. Not abs- information, but absence of track record. So is the concept that you're trying to go for home runs much further down the road, try and find it as early as possible and get in?
1: Generally, yes. But I wouldn't say as early as possible. I mean, I think the way we think about it is we want to develop relationships with companies from early on. So we want to talk to people who are really smart, whether they're from the real estate industry, or that, you know, maybe they're exiting a tech company and see an opportunity in real estate. And so we want to talk to them when we're getting started, we want to learn what they're doing. It's more likely that we invest sort of at the seed stage, which means, and the terminology can be sort of confusing or it can be pretty broad. Like seed means a lot of things to different people. So, but I would say typically when we're investing, the company has a product, there is a team. It's not just, it's not typically an idea on a pitch deck, but it is a product that's in use by, you know, maybe a few companies, but there are some indications of, product market fit that the team that there's a great team that can work together that has this skill set to launch the initial product we're starting to see some pull from the industry so there isn't a ton of data you know it's not like we can dive into the financial metrics and the numbers are skewed you know what i mean like they have one big customer and you can't see consistency or repeatability necessarily but you know there is enough to start understanding could this team be a winner and start to build a thesis and the team is obviously very important at this stage
0: and what are your driving metrics? Like, What do you pay the most attention to when you're first unearthing a new opportunity? What's the goalpost that you're looking at for a yes or a no?
1: So, I mean, it depends. It's not necessarily based on specific financial metrics where they need to have reached a certain level of sales or a certain number of customers. We really look at the team. So team is huge for us. You know, you're investing in people and you're investing in them in the long term. And if you look at most companies that at the seed where they are and and where they end up when they exit. The companies can look very different. And so really, you're really trying to vet the team, their experience. Why are they the ones to make this idea work? You know, we see a lot and you hear a lot of this has been tried before, you know, people tried this five years ago and it doesn't work. And, you know, with most companies, it has been tried before. Most companies aren't frontier technology where it's a technology differentiator, but they have to have the right team and the right tech at the right time. So we're looking a lot at the team and, and try to understand why they're the ones. We also look at momentum, though. You know, are they making progress as we speak to them, especially if we've known them for a year or two? You can start to see, can they are they delivering? Are they making progress week over week, month over month? How quickly can they test and learn? Things of that nature.
2: How often do you get in a scenario where you love the tech and you think that it's got great potential and all the financial metrics or the velocity that they've got is up for absorption? Seem to be investment worthy, but you get in there and you meet the teams, and you go, huh, those guys are jerks. And how much of an impact does that have on your decision to get engaged with them or not?
1: I mean, the team is the most important thing for us. So if we don't believe in the team for whatever reason, if it's, There can be many reasons why we don't think the team drives, whether it's CEO or the way that the team works together. I mean, at this stage in the company, you really are investing in the team. So we really do try to get a sense of the people and we do reference check the people. We spend a lot of time together. So, you know, that is core to our decision making. So to your question, it depends on what kind of jerks they are. But no, I mean, I think we would choose people over great metrics. Like it is a relationship that you're getting into when we expect that we're going to be investors in this company for eight to 10 plus years. And so you're going to be working with people for a long time. And we need to really believe that in the team and believe that they are going to make decisions for their customers and for their employees in a way that will align with what we believe will be best for the company and for everyone involved. It's hard to start a startup and it's hard to get to know one another. And people aren't perfect. People learn. A lot of CEOs start out younger and and less experienced and grow into the CEOs that you see on TV and that are exiting and and billionaires. And and they might not have been that person at the time. So I don't think you can expect perfection. But I think that we think really hard about what the characteristics of a leader and how they treat people and how they think about the business and also how receptive they are to feedback and discussion. So we spend a lot of time with, with people before we invest in and that's a key component. Well, let's talk about some
0: of the people that you do like then. I believe you're invested in a handful of companies. Is there any of the names we know or what's the most exciting products you're investing in now?
1: So we've invested in 10 companies so far. It's a 70-30 split with 70% of the companies being in the U.S. and 30% in Canada. Some of the people you may know. So we invested in Branch, which was launched by Greg Hayes. He was, as well as Verity, Sylvester. And then they have a third co-founder, Sib. But Verity and Greg are from Toronto, they worked at Oxford and Manulife. Greg went on to work at Breather and that's sort of where he got the idea and really saw the challenges around furnishing office space. And so, you know, he's known to many in the Toronto community and they are doing fantastic. They were selling office furniture, B2B, and really trying to make the experience of furnishing your office easy and affordable for businesses. And then, you know, COVID came along and people mostly furnish their offices when they have a new lease. And so they had to figure out what the best strategy was for the company. In the meantime, while everyone is pushing out their leases and they launch a new business line direct to consumer where they're focused on helping people furnish their offices at home. And I mean, it sounds like they sold office furniture and they still sell office furniture, just a different channel, but that, it, that requires, you know, changes to every aspect of operations, packaging, sales, you know, figuring out how you can make the economics work. So that's been pretty impressive to see. And going forward, they'll have, you know, the two business lines now. So they'll continue with direct-to-consumer. And there was a bump when everyone was ordering back at the beginning of May when they you know, are sick of sitting on the couch for weeks on end. But we expect that the work-from-home sort of office market will be doubled something like that, of what it was prior to COVID, where people now have, or more people will have a desk at home and an office set up at home than they did before. And at the same time, landlords are starting to think about more spec suites, co-working space, trying to figure out what to do with some of the co-working spaces. And then as offices start to go back and think about as they sign new leases or rethink offices and start thinking about their furniture options, we think that's going to be great for the company. So that's one that will be known to people in Toronto. And then, you know, when we're really excited about what the team's doing. We've also invested in a company out of San Francisco and New York now called Eden, and they do workplace software. So they have a marketplace for office services. If you're looking for anyone from Handyman to Plumbers to HVAC, anything like that, they can help you sort of create a marketplace for that. But they've more recently turned a lot of the software they'd already built and turned it on for customers. So that's things like visitor management, managing capacity of who's coming into the office, booking meeting rooms, all these things that are... Even more important as people return to the office from quote, after being home, and then they on the same they've done the same thing on the vendor side where they're getting a lot of demand from their vendors to figure out could they use some of the booking communications with tenants, all of that, bring it on and use it across their platform. So there's you know launched some, a SaaS platform that's doing great. And then, you know, obviously, Lane would be well known to people in Toronto, they a Toronto based real estate tech company, you know, I'd say one of the top in Canada, and they focus on tenant experience. So companies like Brookfield and Dream and Hallmark and others use Lane as the app, like they it backs my Brookfield Dream Plus. So it's really the back end that deals with all of the tenant experience. and And I think that as people go back to the office, we're going to see more and more integration of any type of amenities and experience and access into sort of one place where as a tenant, you know, you go to one place on your phone to access anything to do with the
2: building. Do you, maybe you can't answer this question, but I'll ask it anyway. What's the negotiation process like? Let's say you find a good people, great team, great product. You believe in it. Your advisory board says, yes, there'd definitely be absorption of this. I would like to get involved. What's the negotiation process like? Like, And I'm just thinking about the TV show Dragon's Den, right? Where it's like $1 million for 30 shares or whatever. And how heated does it get at times? And how competitive could it be? If you've got a kind of product that people believe in, are there competitors to you that are having the same discussions at the same time and you kind of get into a bidding war? Like,
1: what's that like? Yes, to all of it. So yeah, I mean, any great company is going to be able to get funded. Just put it differently, there's a lot of money in the private markets. You know, as I'm sure you guys are seeing, There's a lot of money that was public is looking for opportunities to go into get its companies earlier. And so kind of every investor is sort of looking a bit earlier than they used to. So and there's tons of capital going into the private market. So there's a lot of money that is going into startups. So on great companies that we see. We do try to find unique ways to access companies. And you know we have a, a strong value proposition being focused specifically on the real estate vertical. And, and that does appeal to entrepreneurs. So we do try to create something to be a partner for them. But yeah, you do expect that great companies and great founders are going to have multiple offers and be able to get multiple term sheets. So you want to participate, right? So you're trying to figure out how do you what's an appropriate way to participate, whether you're leading the deal or whether you're just trying to get to put money into the company. And on the other side, you know, you're trying to figure out what is the right amount with, and a lot of this is with the company, right? You build a relationship and that is part of the biggest decision. Like companies, you know, they have a choice. They can choose on valuation alone, or they can choose on the kinds of partners they want to work with. So, you know, in many cases, these are conversations that are happening to try to understand how much money does the company need to get to the milestones that they'll get to next that like for the next round. So that's a big conversation around how much money do you raise? And then, you know, the valuation, you're trying to also manage. Some funds have ownership targets. So it's often, you know, 20 to 30% dilution of each round. So that's kind of a one sort of barrier as well. Like you need to, they might need a certain amount of money at the early stage to get to the next round. And then, you know, there's typical sort of dilution metrics of how much companies typically give away of the company at an early stage. And then, you know, you're trying to price it reasonably, like you don't want to overprice and overvalue a company early on. And then if they don't grow into the and get those metrics, then it can get harder. It can be harder to raise the next round. So, you know, it's a bit of a balance of trying to get into the companies that you want to and also doing it in a way that makes sense for all of the participants.
2: Out of the 10 investments you've made that have been successful, how many have gotten away where you're like, ah, I wish we had been able to make that work?
1: So we have participated in a lot more companies that we've led. So, you know, if we participate, it's then somebody else set the terms and then we're trying to get an allocation of the round. There's definitely companies that have got away for different reasons where we haven't invested in their round and, and maybe we wish that we did. And that, you know, that can be a decision where we decided not to lead the round or not to participate. And you still don't know yet, right? Like in many cases, we've only been around for two years. So We will have, you know, some VCs have a list of misses or I I forget the name of, there's a famous one, there's some famous ones, but, but yeah, there'll be companies that we passed on that we shouldn't have. And sometimes we pass on them after the first meeting. Sometimes you go sort of deeper and you can't get aligned. So we'll definitely have ones we missed on and there's some, and we don't know yet which ones they will be. Even the ones that we think we missed on now might end up not being them or they will. So we're, it's still too early to tell
2: there's none, right? That's the goal. Hopefully,
1: there, hopefully there's none, but that's impossible, right? Like yeah. if you see too many companies, so you're not going to get into everything and you don't know no knows. and knows. And that's really the opportunity for entrepreneurs though, right? If everyone believes in what you're building, then everybody wants to back you. And then, then it's really, you know, probably a more obvious idea. I think that some of the more unique ideas or, or companies that are approaching it in a different way and also different kinds of investors who invest in different types of things and look for different profiles or different focus areas. So you know there's lots of investors, but you know they're not—they all look for different things. And we talk to co-investors and and other people in the space all the time. And you disagree. You invest in companies that other people have passed, in, and then you just wait and see and support the companies.
0: So you're out in the marketplace looking at a lot of opportunities. It sounds like so outside of you know the companies you have invested in, what are you seeing that? is coming up in the near term that you think would be investable in the prop tech arena? What kind of technology should people be excited about in terms of real estate, the real estate world?
1: Yeah, so I mean, we look at a number of different areas. I personally think that there's going to be a lot more tech companies that make it easier to buy and sell homes or find real estate on the commercial side. So going through, we just bought a a place and there's a lot of room for improvement you know what I mean? Like everything is still pretty manual. It's all email based. There's even every form you have to fill out from scratch. And there's nothing that is like the information isn't in one place where you can share it from everyone. So I think that on the whole like home buying to closing process, we've seen a lot of companies, some of the I buyers and mortgage companies are doing better than others. And I think there's still a lot of room there. I think there's going to be a lot on energy and anything that's touchless, more automation. You know, you mentioned before, like cleaning robotics, just even remote utilization, really trying to be able to understand what's happening in your assets. And that's from people, that's who's coming in and out, even from everything of just understanding how the HVAC system's working, how to make it more efficient. We're already starting to see advertising showing the quality of or how much outdoor air is coming in. And so you're starting to see people ask different questions as a result of more information about how infections and colds and everything spread. People are more aware now, so I think we're seeing sort of yeah automation and ESG and health tech, anything on the transactions. Just like I think that over time it will be easier to do many of the things that we do today. Just less reconciliation, less emails, more automation, and you know just making it much easier for sort of end-to-end transactions with less people and less manual entry.
0: You got my attention at less emails. So the growth as you're describing it seems incremental just we'll keep just improving 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 rather than one company stepping up and saying hey i've got solution x and solution x is going to just leap us forward in one fell swoop it sounds like a, an iterative process where things just get more efficient and faster is, am i missing that or is that correct
1: i don't think it's entirely incremental but i would say real estate is still very behind in the adoption of technology and A lot of people don't feel like the technology has lived up to the promises yet, and you know that's because real estate companies have tons of data, but it's very hard to access. If you want to know, you know, how many people have been on tours, uh, let's analyze even where tenants moved across our portfolio. It can be a lot harder than it should be because the information isn't stored in a way that makes it accessible. So I think that the next generation of companies that you've been seeing, companies like BTS and Procore and Dealpath, all of these kind of companies are they are taking what was already done and bringing it online and collaborative and accessible to everyone. And so, you know, it is incremental, but I think once you do that, and as you do that, it becomes way more powerful and you're become able to do things like, you know, understand industry benchmarks. So, you know, which GCs or contractors are easier or harder to work with or make more change requests, being able to query and and try to like ask questions and being able to ask it in more sort of natural ways. So rather than, you know, having to get an analyst to spend 24 hours trying to put together an Excel report that answers your question, being able to ask more and more complicated questions that you can sort of write in, you know, in text form and be able to get sort of the analysis. So on that side, on the productivity side. It is incremental and and some things will change. There will be sort of evolutions and changing what we do. But also, you know, I think it's very powerful. It feels like it's incremental. But once if you're able to, even now that you start asking Google Home, for example, what's the weather? It's complicated data that is able to find those answers or, you know, any question you have being able to find the right answer. And I think that as you start being able to do that in real estate, it will make people more informed so they can make better decisions and and spend less time on sort of the manual work that you don't enjoy and more time on more strategic decisions. So I think sort of on that aspect, we're seeing sort of incremental improvements. But I also think some of these business models are changing. Roles start to change. You know, there is some technology like you're seeing... Drones use more to monitor what's happening on drones or other sensors used to monitor what's happening on construction sites. So more people can have insight into what's happening. You're seeing more on prefab construction and different ways to actually add different materials, different designs, different production methods. So all of this changes over time, but at the same time, we're still building buildings and monitoring them and asset management. So people's jobs, those jobs don't go away. I think they'll just change over time and use different tools and different technologies to empower people.
2: How often are the challenges, and you mentioned this, and I'm going maybe on a, on a wild tangent here, but how often are some of the challenges that you're facing or seeing that some of your potential investments are trying to solve related to what you mentioned, just that because the large real estate firms have their own data but don't necessarily share their data so that you don't necessarily have true, full complete data? I mean, you've got a great advisory board with a whole bunch of institutional investors. Can't you just turn around and go, okay, everybody give me access to your data. I'll invest in a big data analytics company. I'm going to solve this problem. Like, what kind of conversations do you have around big data?
1: I mean, there's more companies that are on the data side specifically, companies like Cherry and others that are starting to integrate more data and make more data accessible. Companies that are trying to help you tap into the data that you have and and sort of outsource data sciences teams and analytics teams. So the promise of analytics is there and there's multiple different ways that companies are partnering with with real estate companies, whether that's sort of partnerships and and keeping the data exclusive. And so they, you know, they'll, you can bring your data onto the system, but only you can use it or it can only be used in an anonymous way or totally anonymized and just aggregated together and, and sold. So there's companies that are working on this but, you know, at the same time, some companies are more or less conscious about whether it's maintaining their data and sharing it or, yeah, so it's a total mix. And, and we're it, we're still like, we're still early in those days, I would say.
2: Yeah, I can personalize it a little bit. Of course, First National, we're the largest commercial lenders. So we have a ton of real estate property data, underwriting data, lending data that comes through and figured out a way to aggregate it. But now we're trying to figure out how to what to do with it. And it's only as valuable as what I'm using it to determine, meaning if I had, Brookfield's data, as well as Sun Life's data, as well as Crap reads data, it becomes much more useful and we're just not there yet, right? For people to be willing to share it to get way more useful information for better decision-making, for more efficiency. So I, I totally appreciate we're not there yet.
1: Yeah, and I mean, there, if you think about it too, though, right? It's like data is only as good as how it was collected. So, you know, if it was collected in a structured format that was sort of thought out and more automatic, then there's less likelihood of errors. Whereas if it's manual entry... Or optional entry, you know, people might only enter the things that they need to. And so then you don't have the holistic data that you might need. But if you think about comparing your data to Great West Life's data, to Dream's data and Hallmark's data, you're dealing with different sizes of buildings. And so so you have to be really thoughtful about, you know, you have the data, but then how do you figure out and and sort of automate some of that to say, these things are comparable, like these buildings are comparable and size might not be the only thing, right? So it might be, it has to be size, it's location. And trying age. to figure out yeah. and trying to figure out what different sort of components need to be considered, like all of the. So it's not just a we don't have the data, but there is a lot of thought that needs to go into how to structure it and compare it. And so that's both from our business side, so people who know real estate, as well as things that you can do, sort of that are more automated that can start to suggest trends and point out anomalies.
0: I mean, people can't agree on, uh, on something as simple as cap rates, let alone uh, something more complicated. So I, I see how that would be a bit of a challenge. Aaron brought up Dragon's Den, which, of course, would be the greatest proxy we have as, as just average citizens to understand anything you do. And they're a common complaint. No, sorry, that's not fair. Sorry. A common barrier to investment is the education component. And you already alluded to the fact that real estate tends to lag. And in our particular world, commercial real estate tends to even lag residential in terms of adopting new technology. So when you see a new tech come along, do you ever feel the burden of having to change so many minds and antiquated notions and people just stuck in the habit of doing something inefficiently over and over?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's one of the biggest challenges for some of the tech companies that we work with, right? Like they, especially if they come from outside of the industry, you know, they see huge potential for technology and you know, trying to get everyone within large real estate companies in particular to you know, agree and move things along. Like sales cycles can be six to 12 months in many cases when startups are trying to sell into larger real estate companies and they have to figure out who do they need to speak with and, and who do they have to get on side and, and who really do they need to get on side And so that's sort of one of the biggest challenges. But at the same time, I mean, I think in general, real estate tech companies are starting to adopt more and more technology, you have more people who are working on this, whether they're within the asset management group, or whether they're at the properties, or whether there's specific teams within innovation, tech, IT. And so there's a lot more support for new types of technologies, new types of ideas. And so I think that and I think a lot of companies, they want to be leaders, and then they also don't want to be the first ones to test things out. So I think you always need to figure out who is the who are the companies in the space that are going to be the ones to take the risk first, then you'll start to see people follow once it's been tested out. So overall, like enterprise sales can be difficult in in real estate tech, but you know, as long as the companies are really selling something that matters and, and figure out how to make make a clear ROI case and convince the right people and get in front of the right people, I think that, you know, we're starting to see more and more adoption. And then on the other side, you know, in some cases where things are even more out there or require more different departments to be on board or more changes to the business model, in some cases you're seeing companies where they're raising their own real estate funds or they're doing it themselves. So whether that's some of the iBuyers, you know, companies like Unison, like they raise funds that were specifically for this, you know, some companies that are in property management are doing even more sort of co-working and co-living models. In some cases, they are fine development partners. In some cases they start with finding more unique access to capital where people are willing to take bigger risks and then they are able to test it out and prove out the concept and show real estate companies, Hey, this actually look how well it actually works when we do it. And so, you know, it's tough because in some cases, you know, you need a mindset shift and you need those early adopters. And in other cases, so much of technology's power is based on the people who are using it, on the company's ability to change the way things work. I and mean, there's tons of failed technology projects where you know you bring in this new powerful technology, even like collaboration tools, and then people say, "Okay, let's save each version and send it to me separately by email," and all of a sudden you're losing the core capability of the of the tech. So you know it's not just about does the technology work; it's also about The people internally going to use technology and adapt their processes and systems and, you know, and even, you know, take the time to, it might require education, it might require different, augmenting your team to bring on new skill sets and new mindsets. So there's a lot of factors in how companies really affect change and really innovate and and where it comes from. And so it depends on the company. And but overall, we are seeing sort of the real estate industry trend in in a good direction. And you are seeing, you know, some of the largest companies in the world make tech investments, use tech across their portfolio, and and that really shows the rest of the industry the opportunity.
2: Good. I'm happy to hear that because it's one of the things that Adam and I are regularly talking about is just how slow these things take in the real estate world. And often we've been talking about prop tech now, I don't know, it's five or six years when it became sort of the the cool buzzword in the industry. And yet you still really don't feel like it's gone anywhere. So on that note, Courtney, last question, it's 2030 and we're sitting here and Adam and I are of course still doing the podcast and you're a guest and I go, okay, Courtney, in the last 10 years, what was the biggest new technology that was adopted by the real estate community?
1: Oh, it's hard. I mean, I think that to your point, we've been talking about prop tech and technology for five years, and it doesn't feel like everything's different. And I think that sometimes it's like it's slow and then fast. So I think and and hope by 2030 that a lot of the things that you envision and hope for from technology in terms of how easy it is to buying a home, you should be able to worry about the decisions around a home purchase and not about when scheduling the realtor and signing documents and and everything like that. So I think that a lot of the technology aspects hopefully will be a lot smarter, able to access a lot more information and have a lot more transparency into market. I think that the vision of being able to access your phone, like to use your phone, to access your office and be able to control sort of the lighting and your environment and comfort. You know, I think we're going to, so all of those things that we've been hoping for, I think we're going to be, you know, experiencing them and, and it'll feel natural. Like the problem with, great technology solutions is that you don't notice them, right? Like it just works. And we know that in our day-to-day life, we notice all of the things that don't work, all of the emails that go back and forth, all of the error messages and trying to figure out why something didn't happen. And, And so I think that the challenging thing is from a user perspective, whether you're a home buyer or, you know, an employee at a real estate company, I think that things should just feel smoother and easier and faster to do all the things you want to do. But I also think we'll start to see sort of more in the way of AI helping decisions or just helping you identify trends and anomalies. We'll start to see more in terms of automation within the building and using sort of smarter you know, we talk about IoT and, and having all of the, the HVAC systems and air quality and all of these things connected and working together and both on the construction site and, and development site. So, you know, noticing things before they happen, knowing if you're behind plan, knowing if there are flood, all of these things starting to really sort of happen more automatically. So rather than you having to remind yourself to go and check these things and do inspections, you're starting to know a lot more before it happens. So I, so I think that there's not like one big sort of reveal, I think in, in 2030, but I think it's, it's all of these. Things moving forward and actually working because we have seen more adoption. The companies are further along. We probably have seen more consolidation in the industry. So you have some new stronger players that are competing with the existing incumbent technology. And and I, I think we'll see more tech-enabled real estate companies. So it's real estate companies are very established. A lot of them have long histories. And I think we'll start to see sort of newer private equity funds and property management companies that just start that are using technology in every part of their business and competing and leading in the industry.
0: I like that analogy of just the seamlessness of what it could be. I mean, there's technologies in our lives that are absolutely there, absolutely essential. They function in the background. It makes our lives so much easier, but it's not in your face, as an antiquated example, I enjoy my light bulbs in my home. But I don't think about them until the moment they go out, but they vastly improve my life when they're running. So it's, I'm not sure if that's where you're going with that message, at least that was my interpretation. So I guess we'll end off our prop tech episode by talking about light bulbs. You know, up next, <laughs> up next Aaron, I get it in the after show. Courtney, thanks so much for coming on. We hope to have you back on sooner than 2030, but uh, Aaron's putting that date in the calendar right now. We'll have you back on to review this episode then. Awesome. We want to thank First National for powering the podcast, and we want to thank Courtney so much for joining us today. Thanks a lot, Courtney.
1: Thank you.
2: Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast After Show, where Adam and I sort of banter back and forth and digest the conversation we just had with Courtney Cooper of Late partners. Like I said at the top, I just love these types of topics, right? We spend so much time talking about asset classes and investment in funds and things like that. Having something a little bit outside of on the fringes of the real estate world is refreshing. So that was a cool conversation. You know, as we were wrapping up there, and she was kind of mentioning about how even though there might have been lots of progress in technology, prop tech, you don't notice it as much because it becomes seamless. And yet I'm sitting here in the office on a iPad that's on Wi-Fi, doing a video conference with you in Muskoka, with Courtney, wherever she is, with crystal clear video, no issues with the dialogue, no issues with the sound. And so it's like, you know, you had said three years ago to me that you're going to have this flexibility to carry an iPad around your office and be able to do video conferencing with the click of a button or push of a button. I would have said, no, you can't. But I never think about it now. It just seemed normal, right? Like, it just seems like a totally seamless transition so like it is true that your brain actually doesn't pick up on it when it it just becomes part of your life and yet it's a big advancement from something if you thought about you know what 3 5 years ago was like yeah i mean not that I want to revisit my light bulb analogy,
0: <laughs> but uh, it, but it is true. It's actually funny. I first started real estate. I worked for a gentleman who was you know like decades ahead of me in his career, which makes sense because I was new to the industry and needed a junior. And he talked about the big breakthroughs. And so we're talking about prop tech, but prop tech is a concept would just be defined about where you're starting from. You know, he said the big leaps forward that he remembered over his entire career was the first one was. Computers no longer having to type out offers because that's really time consuming, having to type out offers out a typewriter and now you go to computers. Computers big jump forward. Okay, great. And then the next one of course would be a fax machine. Now you don't have to travel around with offers. You can just fax them to each other and speed up the whole process. And Google Street View was the third example. Those are the kind of the moments where there was, you know, a big leap forward. I mean, I'm sure everybody in real estate uses Google Street View four or five times a day. And it's amazingly handy. It allows you to have high visibility into areas you might not be familiar with. You really get a feel for it. I mean, nothing beats actually walking a property, walking the neighborhood. But if you need a quick, quick review of a neighborhood, this Google Street View is an amazing, amazing prop tech. We use it for property endeavors. So that would make it a prop tech, even though that's not his primary. But in his mind, there was those few jumps forward. And so I always wonder what the next one's going to be for us. You know, when we're looking back at our careers, Aaron, you and I, when we're 60. And uh, we look back, what were our leaps
2: forward? Yeah, I I have no idea. I don't even have anything anything that even comes to mind. And and I mean, I guess that kind of leads to some of the comments we made where it just feels like it's been really, really slow. Like when did Google Street View become a thing? Like that's what, 10 10 years ago at least, right? I think. So it's been a while since there's been anything that's really kind of altering our lives. I do think, and I've said this before, I think on the podcast where as people get more comfortable with the pinging and tracking of your phones, where like that will be used in prop tech, where particularly maybe in COVID times where your office building can feel you coming, knows you're coming, know you parked in the basement, sending elevators to pick you up or the doors automatically unlock as you get close where it's just it totally, you got this thing in your pocket that has that capability now. And that could make your life so much easier. You don't have to push the buttons and wait for the elevator. You don't have to like, take your key pass out and tap it against the wall to open a door. You just, you're just around and wherever you are, whatever needs to happen just happens because it feels you there. But that means you're being tracked. And I know there's a lot of challenges and people's personal privacy issues that come along with that. But to your point about, you know, nothing has happened in 10 years, you know, those would be the big
0: game changers. But even think about the way you did business 10 years ago when you were new to First National, I believe, 10 years ago, and the way you do it now, it's way easier now from a you know, research perspective. You know, we have things like CoStar that just puts the whole world of data at your fingertips within seconds. You know, you're not spending three hours pulling together random sources to try and get an approximation what they can offer you in two seconds. You know, there is advancements in a number of different areas of what we do every day, but yes, I do like the big game changer technology. I'm always very excited to hear about something that's going to radically change the way
2: we do anything. Yeah. And I mean, and I was thinking like you made that light bulb analogy and Courtney was making the note of the comment that you don't really notice it. Like there's no flying car moment in the near future, right? Like I don't think that's happening in the next century where there's going to be this one giant, like the microwave, right? Like if you think about past generations, when that microwave came out, it was like the future is here. Watch this, push a button and now your dinner's hot. I don't know if there's anything like that coming anytime soon. I mean, the Internet of Things, but again, like, that's going to be slow and purposeful, right? Like, that's kind of what I'm talking about with walking around with your phone and things are all connected and can feel you around or whatever. You can unlock your doors, lock your doors, or turn the temperature down in the particular meeting room you're in. Like, I'm not, I think those things will all come in very, very slowly. And then all of a sudden, it'll be like Zoom calls and in, in video conferencing where you'll look back and go, oh, yeah, it is really easy. I didn't even think about the slow change that occurred. Well, even the technologies we use, I'll give the example that always struck
0: me. When I was new to Collier's, I was working in Collier's and I was spending a lot of time on the MLS and I was you know, trying to get listings and I saw a $10 million listing pop up on the MLS. This would have been 2000, 2011, I would guess. And the photos that accompanied it were clearly done by a cell phone that, in 2011, was not particularly new. So it was that you know, it was a while. For, for an exercise, go back to Facebook and look at the first few photos you posted on Facebook. They were pretty granular, pretty terrible. The cell phone technology then was not great. Now we get crystal clear, amazing photos that you have in your pocket, ready to go at any moment when you have to you come across property. But this listing is a $10 million listing. Meaning, the listing agent's probably making from his end $200,000 off of it, which is a you know a nice sum of money. And the photos were done with this awful camera, granular, terrible composure. To top it off, you could also see his rear view mirror in the bottom left corner of the photo, meaning he didn't bother getting up his car to do it. (laughs) And it just struck me as, how ill-equipped are you to put together a $200,000 Two hundred thousand dollars worth of service proposition here. And so you just and now in two thousand twenty, you don't see photos like that of properties ever. Everything's great. I mean, and the next leap forward is drone photography, really gives just stunning visuals.
2: But well, everybody and, 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 and videos. videos and videos, right? Where like it's not even it's not even a brochure with pictures of the common areas. It's a fly through of the common areas at different angles, and that's how you're now experiencing the potential sale of a property. Yeah. No. That. Yeah. Interesting.
0: But to that point though, I bet the first time you saw a fly-through video or aerial photos, I bet it was for a single family home, not a commercial property. Commercials always lag residential and adopting the newest, shiniest way to try and sell a property. I don't know why that is, but it definitely is true. Well- I'm not going to end off this segment again on a light bulb analogy, but I will say that was a super interesting topic. I always love when we get into whether it's currency or the internet of things or something that's really going to change our lives. I'm always excited to talk about it and I look forward to the next one, Aaron. Yeah,
2: I'm proud of us. We went, did an entire PropTech episode and we didn't mention blockchain once. Not once, no. no once. Usually
0: that's our go-to when we talk about <laughs> anything to do with PropTech. Yeah. That's all we yeah. know. That's all we know. Next time, yeah. next time. Yeah, <laughs> Yeah, definitely. All right, everybody. Thanks a lot. Take
2: it easy. Quick reminder to register for the 2020 Real Estate Forum, which takes place on the 2nd and 3rd of December by going to realestateforums.com. Real Estate Forum Club members, remember to enter your membership number to receive your 20% discount. Adam and I really look forward to connecting with you and many others this year at the Forum.
1: Thank you for listening to the CRE Podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario license number 10514 and 11252.